Good morning. The Bible reading today comes from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 to 19. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son, Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached a place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know you fear God, because you have not withheld him from me, your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide, and to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offering, offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back up here after seconds um, in which I was up here previously. I am delighted to be bringing the word to you today, but before we get to that, I'm going to pray, because it's not an easy passage, and so we need God's guidance. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that even through this difficult passage, you open it up to our hearts and open up your, our hearts to what you have to say. And we pray that in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Are my slides at all coming through? Not a pretty image, is it? Italian painters um, basically rendered almost every scene of the Bible um, in artwork like this. Um, 
was considered almost an evangelism effort because lots of people couldn't read back in the Middle Ages. Um, and even during the Renaissance, lots of them couldn't read. This is how they learned about stories. They need a pictorial image. It's not a nice story. Um, not a nice story by any stretch of the imagination. Most modern versions give it a, a nicer title. Um, they'll call it God Tests Abraham's Faith, or Abraham is Tested, or something like that. But the classic name for this story is The Binding of Isaac, or The Sacrifice of Isaac. And it's one of the most well-known passages of Scripture outside of the sort of greatest hits like Moses and the Red Sea, or God Creates the World. And there's an understandable reason that we like to use a softer name when we can, because we like to focus on the, the nice, well, the high, the noble aspect um, of this story, because... In that sense, it's a story about Abraham, a man who is so dedicated to God that he, like God, is willing to sacrifice his only son for the sake of the ongoing communion of man and God. And that's the part of the story that the writer of Hebrews focuses on in Hebrews 11, where he talks about how Abraham is justified by faith. But it's possible to do a disservice to the story in Scripture if we fail to take a step back from the easiest lessons and also look in the shadows for the hard lessons. Because this is not an easy story. It's not just a man and his son taking part in a demonstration of God's mercy. This is a story about a man whom God asks to kill his child. And he went to the place where God told him to go. And they walk for three days, Abraham knowing what he has to do without telling anyone. He climbs the mountain with his adult son. He ties him up. He puts a knife to his throat. And then God intervenes and provides an alternative sacrifice. Abraham has proven his faith, and after this, the Bible offers no detail about, for example, what was the walk back down the mountain like? What were they talking about for the three days on the way home? How did Sarah react when she heard this uh, story, probably secondhand from Isaac? And importantly, since God had already promised Abraham that his children would be numerous and blessed and the world would be blessed through them, God promises to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. What does Abraham or God gain from this? Who is this test meant to benefit? And, and what could we possibly take away from what is instinctively such a troubling and maybe even horrifying story? Well, it's, it's here for a reason. It's endured for a reason. Um, and... Painful and ugly as it happens to be as a narrative account, it's here before us for a reason. And so we'll step through the passage first, seeing what the passage reveals to us. Uh, there we go. Uh, starting in Genesis 22, verses 1 to 3. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. God said to him, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go into the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When they had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, they set out to the place God had told him about. Now, it's hard to overstate how much of a nightmare this must be for Abraham to hear. Now, remember everything that he went through. He was 99 when God told him that he was going to have a son through his wife, Sarah, but reiterated that promise. It was told 25 years earlier when he was 75, and then God revisited him and said, remember that promise I gave to you. It's coming true. Now, And now a 99-year-old um, in Genesis is not the same as a, a 2019 99-year-old. This is still a uh, fairly rugged man, I guess. He still fights battles and travels. He has um, what we call old man strength. But um, there's a lot of years to have lived 
wanting a child and a legacy and coming to terms with that not happening with the woman that he loves and then settling to accept it. And then God calling him out of his homeland and promising him a child even at that age. And then Abraham and Sarah, they lose heart and they concoct this plan that they'll have a child through another woman, through Hagar, the maidservant, and God rejects that plan. And then they have Isaac. Um, There's bitterness between the two women now, Sarah, the woman Abraham loves, and Isaac, the promised child, and then Hagar, the mother of Abraham's first child, the only son he has had up until that point, still his boy. And then to keep peace with Sarah, he... Uh, has to send that part of his family away, send Hagar and Ishmael away, and that's like cutting out a part of himself. And then something like 30 years later, when Isaac is a grown man, he is standing there, God's promise to him made flesh in Abraham's sight. Abraham's close to 130 years old now. He's been through wars and battles and travel and heartache and everything in between, and now life is good. And God says, take this young man, your child, your only son, whom you love, go up on the mountain that I choose, kill him, and burn his body until there is nothing left, if indeed you are faithful to me. Now, can you imagine anything worse that God might ask of a faithful servant? Even Job lost his kids in uh, his terrible story of despair and loss, but he didn't have to do the deed himself. And to make it even more nightmarish, remember that Abraham isn't just being asked to kill his son, but also to burn his body. And this isn't a cremation culture uh, like, uh, like Hindus have or like the, the ancient Vikings had. What happens to the body of a dead loved one is very important to the Hebrew people, all the ancient Semitic peoples. They wanted to be buried with their ancestors because their idea of what comes after death was still developing, still murky. God hadn't revealed the full truth of what happens in eternity. So they would be buried in their family tomb and preserved as whole as possible. Uh, you remember that maybe that, uh, that Joseph, for example, goes to great pains to make sure that his body is carried out to be buried with his ancestors. Um, this is common enough, but Isaac is he's going to be a burnt offering. There's not going to be much left to bury. Now, there's no verse in between two and three describing Abraham's agony, and I, but I just I doubt that he slept much that night. Um, but incredibly obedient, he gets up the next day. He prepares, he takes his son and two servants and a donkey, and they cut this wood together for the sacrifice. They march for three days into the mountains. Abraham tells no one the plan of what's exactly going to go on. We get to verses 4 to 8. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now we can understand why Abraham leaves his servants behind, um, at least initially, like he doesn't want anyone to witness what's going to happen. Why would you want anyone to witness? But why does he leave the donkey behind is a natural little additional question that comes up. Why must he make his son carry the wood upon which he is going to die uh, up the mountain? Well, the, the place they are going is holy ground. Uh, neither the Gentile servants nor an unclean animal would really be permitted to go there. And so Isaac is loaded up with wood for the sacrifice and Abraham carries 
the fire and the knife. And we shouldn't miss the symbolism here, the sacrificial man carrying up the wooden instrument of his own destruction up the hill to die as a sacrifice. Even here, way back in the Old Testament, God is preparing his people to recognize Jesus when he comes. Isaac seems to understand how it usually goes. Maybe Abraham would typically carry a lamb on his shoulders so that each of them had a burden. But here, Abraham carries under the knife with, much, with which he uh, must kill his son and the fire with which he must deny him the opportunity, as far as is immediately apparent, to lay to rest with his family. Isaac begins to get suspicions and asks where the lamb is for the sacrifice, and Abraham lies to him. It's not a hard lie. It's a very Abraham sort of lie. Um, God has given him no assurance that he will provide a substitute at this point, but Abraham is doing the same trick that he does when, for example, he will tell a king or two that Sarah is his sister. It's a technical accuracy to lie by omission. But can you really blame him here? What else is he possibly going to say? And now, some commentators, a lot of commentators, even will choose to believe at this point Isaac understands what's going on. He gets that he's going up there to be sacrificed and to die. Um, and he marches to the altar experiencing this and expecting to die as a faithful sacrifice. The verse doesn't exactly say that. Um, that's a part of a speculation. It's not a bad speculation. Um, but I am not sure about that. In fact, the next verse tells us that Abraham has to bind him. That's the binding of Isaac. You don't normally tie up a sacrifice because they're not exactly... Uh, the lamb isn't typically aware of what's going on. But in this case, that's exactly what happens, verses 9 through 12. When they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. So Abraham stacks some stones to make an altar. He puts the wood on it and then something happens. Either Isaac meekly allows Abraham to tie him up, maybe so he doesn't lose his nerve, um, that's possible. Certainly, there's plenty of early Jewish traditions and some early Christian writers who will suggest this is the case. It makes a, a neater parallel to Jesus willingly accepting his cross. They could be right. I don't quite necessarily believe that. Um, the text is silent on exactly how Isaac takes this, uh, this news or this revelation. And that suggests to me maybe that the truth is something unpleasant to write. Maybe that Abraham had to, in fact, overpower his son and tie him up and lay him on top of this altar. The idea that Isaac would placidly accept this fate seems possible, but maybe a little bit optimistic to me. But one way or another, he is readied to be a sacrifice. Now, popular uh, pictures and imaginings have Abraham lifting a dagger high, ready to plunge it down. This doesn't seem quite likely. That's not how sacrifices were performed, by, by stabbing. He probably had to bring the knife to his son's throat. And then at the last moment, God intervenes in verses 13 to 14. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So God's will turns Abraham's half-truth 
that God would provide a sacrifice into a full truth. A ram with its horn stuck in a thicket or in a crown of thorns, if you will, uh, is suddenly made apparent to him. And was that there the whole time? Maybe. If it was, it's hard to imagine they missed it on the first glance. It seems like the kind of thing you notice uh, is a struggling sheep in the immediate vicinity. But either way, it becomes apparent to them. Isaac is spared the knife and the ram dies in his place where God had demanded Isaac's sacrifice. As far as the expression goes, that on the mountain the Lord will be provided, this is, we get a few of these in the Old Testament um, where it's written, and so therefore the saying that we have goes, uh, a saying that was probably popular in Moses' time when this was written down, but obviously has passed into legend now. The angel of the Lord calls out from heaven again, at the end of the passage, verses 15 to 19. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from the second, uh, for a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all the nations on the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. So God's promise is that because of Abraham's obedience here in not withholding his son from God, God will bless his people. He bless them to be numerous, to be victorious, um, that all nations will be blessed through those descendants. And so he heads back down to his servants and they go home. And then the incident is never discussed again by father and son in Scripture. In fact, the next interaction that we get in which Isaac and Abraham have some kind of interaction together is later when uh, Isaac and his brother Ishmael are burying their father decades later. On its face, it's a story in which Abraham, who's been broadly faithful up to this point, um, but occasionally shows this streak of pragmatic doubt where he tries to make his own plans work. Um, for example, when he lies about his wife's identity, he does that rather than trusting God's protection. And this Abraham gets in this last divine encounter to become, for a moment, the most perfectly faithful example of a man possible. But let's take a while to go back and look at some of the uh, stranger parts of the story, because these are worth reflection as well. Now, for a start, God's promised reward here is nothing more than a continuation of what he's already been promised. Remember, Abraham's name was once Abram, and Abram meant exalted father, and that's a tragic name for a man to have as a 99-year-old who had no children. God's promise was that Abraham or Abram would not only be an exalted father, that he would be a father of many nations, and so God gives him this name Abraham, which means father of many. And that's, in fact, the call that God gave to Abraham, the incentive for him to leave his father's house. He says, I will make you a great nation. So what does it mean that God is promising this again after the fact? Well, I think it seems to me like it's a closing of a loop here. God is a forgiving God, certainly, but in the Old Testament, he, has a, uh, he makes a point of making sure that when his greatest servants doubt him, that doubt does not go unfelt later in their story. Now, Moses records in Genesis, um, and he knows this for sure, because he records in his own account, um, in Exodus, how when Moses was called by God, he refused that call over and over to God's, uh, to God's presence there, and then finally accepted. But then as he's accepted and he's traveling to do God's will, the angel of the Lord moves to kill him. 
in response to his rejection. Now, God's wrath then is turned aside when Moses' wife touches him with the blood of their son. Or to put it another way, Moses' son, like Abraham's son, is symbolically offered up as a sacrifice to God. And when King David dishonors the throne that God has given him by murdering one of his own friends to cover up an affair that he has with that man's wife, God does not take kindly to be to being forgotten and sinned against by his typically faithful follower, David. And Nathan the prophet reveals this to David, and David confesses, and this heartbreaking passage follows in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 to 23. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He makes his confession. He's realized he's done wrong. But Nathan answers, The Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. But what you did caused the Lord's enemies to lose all respect for him. For this reason, the son who was born to you will die. Then Nathan went home. And the Lord caused the son of David and Bathsheba, Uriah's widow, to be very sick. David prayed to God for the baby. David fasted and went to his house and stayed there lying on the ground all night. The elders of David's family came to him and tried to pull him up from the ground, but he refused to get up or eat food with them. And on the seventh day, the baby died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the baby was dead. They said, look, we tried to talk to David while the baby was alive, but he refused to listen to us. If we tell him that the baby is dead, he may do something awful. And when David saw his servants whispering, he knew that the child was dead. And he asked them, is the baby dead? They answered, yes, he is dead. Then David got up from the floor, washed himself, put lotions on, changed his clothes. He went into the Lord's house to worship. And after that, he went home and asked for something to eat. His servants gave him some food and he ate. And they asked him, why are you doing this? When the baby was still alive, you fasted and cried. But now the baby is dead. You get up and eat food. David said, while the baby was still alive, I fasted and I cried and I thought, who knows? Maybe the Lord will feel sorry for me and let the baby live. But now that the baby is dead, why should I fast? I can't bring him back to life. Someday I will go to him, but he cannot come back to me. So David sins against God. He confesses. God forgives David and David will not die. But David's son, in some sense here, at least symbolically, dies in his place. David seems to have an assurance that one day he will see the child again, but he accepts the Lord's will and the Lord's judgment. And when God promised Abraham that he would have a child by his wife Sarah, neither Abraham nor Sarah believed it exactly. And in an act of doubt they, uh, and disobedience, they concocted this plan for Abraham to have a child by Hagar the maidservant. And that child, they said, would count as theirs. But God's response at the time was to correct them. To say that, no, my word is true, you will have a child together. And this child that, they've, um, that Abraham has with, with uh, Hagar, this child Ishmael, will not be punished, neither will Hagar be punished for what they've done. But this seems too perfect a reversal uh, to be a coincidence. That the first act in Abraham's covenant with God was to show no faith in God's promise. To give him a child that he thought that he could never have. And then to disobey God in trying to make a substitute. And then the final act in Abraham's covenant with God was to show absolute faith in God's command to give up the child that he never thought that he could have. And because of his obedience, God provides a substitute. There's kind of a poetic reversal here between the conception of Ishmael and the binding of Isaac 
It's like a bookend to Abraham's spiritual journey. Once he doubted God, and now, even in the face of a command so terrible that we can't possibly imagine going through with it ourselves, he showed faith that ultimately God was doing something and that God is good. And whatever it is that God is doing, he believes in God's purposes. And he will do what God commands. Another weird thing about the way this story goes is the way it ends. Verse 19 ends with Abraham returning to the servants and them going to Beersheba, but there's no mention made of Isaac, which is a strange thing to miss at a time like this. There's some pretty wacky theories about why Isaac isn't included here, why it says that Abraham returned to his servants and they went together to Beersheba. Um, But most reasonably, it seems like the story takes the approach that if it doesn't have anything nice to say, it won't say anything at all. Maybe Isaac returned with his father, but the relationship between them had become understandably strained. And so the author deigns not to draw attention to it. Maybe Isaac told his father, you know what? You go on ahead. I will make my own way home at my own pace. And maybe decided to have a little space after that encounter. And again, perhaps understandably so. That's something worth thinking about that isn't entirely obvious in the text. God provided a substitute for Abraham's sacrifice, but Abraham didn't walk away as if he hadn't lost anything there. And symbolically, as powerful as the ram is, undoubtedly foreshadowing that Jesus is the sacrifice being made on our behalf, for something to really be a sacrifice, it has to be something that has value to you. And a sheep that appears out of a thicket isn't anything that Abraham owns at all. He's not going to miss it. But it's possible that Abraham sacrificed something on that mountain that was extremely important to him. His relationship with his son, or part of it at least. Maybe many years after uh, walking with God himself, Isaac would understand a thing that his father had to do, and maybe they found uh, perfect peace over this. But it couldn't have been easy and it couldn't have been immediate to recover from having someone that you trust put a knife to your throat, even if it's for the most holy cause imaginable. A father is supposed to protect you, to be put in that position where a father is about to destroy you. It's inconceivable. Now, could Isaac see past what must have felt at a gut level like a a betrayal of Abraham's responsibility as a father? Hopefully. Could you or I in that place? But maybe that's part of the point, is that God asked Abraham to put second in his life everything other than his covenant with God. Even those things he instinctively prized and knew to prize and held precious to himself. His relationship with Isaac, and for that matter, Sarah, who is going to hear this story undoubtedly secondhand, they're going to suffer because he chooses to swallow his fears and finally trust God utterly with the fate of everything that he has been given, even to places that he doesn't understand. And that's something that we should take away from this. Now, Abraham, he lived in an ancient past in which God was establishing his covenant with the world and becoming known among the nations and making these huge, grand, dramatic moves that would be preserved in his word forever. And simply put, this is one of the two times in Scripture that God calls for a human sacrifice. And in this time, he had no intention of letting Abraham follow through with it. And the other time, it was God himself in the person of Jesus who stepped up and volunteered to be the sacrifice, who was the only possible sacrifice and gave every other sacrifice meaning and value by being there. And for that matter, it gives a clarity and an extra value to this episode, to the binding of Isaac 2,000 years earlier, 
Suddenly what Abraham did was not just an act of obedience, it's a, a picture of God's requirement of a substantial sacrifice to take away human sin. Something greater than animals, but also God's plan to substitute a sacrifice that he had supplied, his son Jesus Christ, who would carry the cross up the hill of Golgotha and die for our sakes. And in case it wasn't in, it's not entirely clear initially, in case it needs to be said, if God is asking you to sacrifice someone, you are having a mental breakdown. And what you need is help finding your right mind again. God painted that picture already. He's not doing it again. And he's been extremely clear throughout Scripture that human sacrifice is not what he wants. Because the whole point of sacrifice is to provide a substitute for the death of sinful humans. But God has not stopped... He's not stopped asking his children from time to time to be prepared to give up things they don't want to give up. To be prepared maybe to give up dreams and even relationships for his sake. And not just things that are necessarily sinful, maybe just things that are outside of his plan. Obviously, God wants each of us to stop the secret habits and practices we know in our lives are against him. But in the act of placing him first and calling him Lord, we are calling him the one that we will follow, regardless of where he leads. We're saying that whatever we dream for our own future, if God commands us to give that up, then we have to trust that he has something in mind that better serves his glory, and his glory is our priority. Now, God may never call us to give up something as dramatic and painful as the depth of a relationship like that, but we are unlikely to get through life without asking, or without God asking us to surrender something that we consider utterly precious. And in obedience, perhaps God will give us back the thing that he asked us to give up, but he might not. He is not required to. The point of such a, a sacrifice is not it's like a trust fall, a heady rush of not knowing and then the assuring uh, cash at the other end. The point isn't expecting God to bless back with more than what was given up. The point is that faith means utter loyalty. Faith means loyalty, especially if we are called to give up something precious. We are called to be faithful to God like a husband and wife are called to be faithful to each other. Richer or poorer, sickness and health, prizing that relationship above all others, and being willing to surrender anything that we prize and hold except for the integrity of that relationship itself. It's not a nice story, but it's not a nice world that we live in. It's a broken, sinful world. And God hasn't promised us that if we follow him, he will give us everything that we want. He promises us that if we follow him, he will give us everything that we are made for. Because we are his children and we belong to him, because he was willing to offer the perfect sacrifice to restore us to him. And because he was willing to offer the perfect sacrifice that restores us to him, we should examine our hearts and be sure that we are willing to offer whatever is required to meet him at the cross. So let's pray together. Father God, it's a difficult word that you have for us today, but we do trust you and we have faith that you are the one with the knowledge and the wisdom and the right to chart the, court, the course for our lives, Lord. And we submit to you. We thank you that you offered your beloved son for our sake. 
and that we receive forgiveness because he paid our debt of blood. And so we ask for courage, Lord. If there's something in our life that we know we are holding on to, that you are calling us to release and to give up to you, Lord, to trust you have a superior plan, then help us to do so, God, weak as we are. If it's in your will to bring that thing back to us, then we will praise you, God. And if it's your will to accomplish your glory better in our lives without that thing, then we will praise you just the same. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, God, now and forever. Amen.